Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. The sponsor for this whole Labor Day Book Blast week is firstbook.org. Obviously, the pandemic is crippling education for millions of students, especially those in low-income communities. The widening digital divide and extended, quote-unquote, summer slide due to COVID is devastating. Apparently, 40% lack access to reliable internet and functioning digital devices they can use for online learning, making the need for physical books and resources to prevent further educational backsliding absolutely critical. Firstbook breaks down the barriers to education for children living in low-income communities by providing its network of more than 475,000 educators serving children in need with free and affordable new high-quality books, educational resources, and basic needs items through the award-winning First Book Marketplace nonprofit e-commerce site. They need your support to ensure these children have what they need to learn during this critical time. Visit firstbook.org to help. Writing is a second act for author Sheila Grinnell. She led the team that opened the Arizona Science Center as the CEO, which welcomes nearly 400,000 visitors a year. And by the way, is one of my favorite places to take my kids when we go out and visit my mom and stepdad during the winter months. A graduate of Bronx Science High School and Harvard University, as well as the University of California at Berkeley, Sheila currently lives in Phoenix and has written two books, The Contract and Appetite. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. My pleasure. I have to ask first, I read that you were born in a taxi. Is that true? That is true. Oh it even God. says so on my birth certificate. Oh, my gosh. Tell me the story behind that. Well, it's the end of the World War II, and my father, who was stationed in the United States, was not present. So my grandfather took my mother downstairs into a taxi cab. I was the first child, and my mother said, the baby's coming, the baby's coming. And, oh, no, no, no. So he took her downstairs, it was New York City, into a taxi, and they called a taxi. And the taxi's moving to the hospital, and my mother says, oh, the baby's here. And evidently, my head emerged. And my mother had the presence of mind to reach down and close my nose because she didn't want me to breathe. The taxi pulls up into the hospital yard, and my grandpa runs out, gets a nurse. The nurse runs back and completes the delivery in the back seat. Oh, my gosh. And then I, when I was old enough to understand all this, I said to my grandpa, Grandpa, what did you do? And he said, I gave the driver a big tip. <laughs> wow. It wasn't good for my mom because you know, this is a long time ago, and since I was contaminated, they put me in a separate room. My mother went to the maternity ward. And she wasn't allowed to see me for almost a week. Oh, no. That must have been so hard. Right. I know when I had my baby, that was out of the hospital two days. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, that's quite a story. <laughs> I also just read your piece about how you feel now that you're in, I don't know what to call it, assisted living or in continuing yeah. care. 
Continuing Care Retirement Community. Continuing Care Retirement Community. Oh, right, CCRC. CCRC, because your husband has Parkinson's, which I was so sorry to read about. And yet you are not, well, tell me, just tell me about writing this piece and what it's been like for you having to sort of transition to this type of living arrangement to help with his care. Well, you know, Parkinson's is a very slow, nasty disease. It's not only movement, it's also cognitive and emotional and it affects your seeing and your hearing and your speech, everything. But it is slow. My husband was diagnosed in 2011, but it's been creeping up. And I got to the point where I knew that something's going to have to change. Everyone says if you're going to move into one of these places, move early so you can enjoy it together before you can't enjoy it together anymore. So we did just about just about a year ago. And it's actually at first it was really wonderful because my husband had some blessings that he didn't had before. He hadn't driven in three years. And here he could just walk to the bistro and get a burger when he wanted, or he could take the exercise classes and chat with the ladies. There are far more women here than men. And a lot of them are widows. And my husband is charming. And he's <laughs> great time. Just see, and they all go, we'd walk together and they all go, hi, Tom, hi, Tom. <laughs> hi, Sheila, they said, hi, Tom. So he felt invigorated and I was relieved because there's always somebody around. He has a little alarm button. He presses the button. Somebody's here in five minutes. They have it set up to take care of people who are old and infirm. And in the future, I know I'm going to need more help. I'm not going to be able to wash him and move him around. I'm not big, but he's bigger. So we're set up and I was enjoying it. And then COVID came. And they, even though we're in independent living, we're not in a nursing home, there is a nursing home on the campus. So they use the nursing home rules for all of us, which meant no visitors at all. Oh, no. No more communal dining. They bring a meal to our door. Somebody drops it off at our door and rings the bell and runs away. <laughs> but they're keeping the disease away. So we have to do with it. So I'm okay. When everything got quiet, I was actually able to concentrate on the next book. I'm writing my next book. Ooh, yeah, let's talk about your writing. Tell me now that you've mentioned it, what is the next book about? And then let's go back and talk about the previous two books. Okay. The next one is a story about a pioneer young woman who comes West, contemporary pioneer. She comes West to find a better life and she winds up in Phoenix, where I am. And it's post-pandemic. I'm writing it as if it's three years from now. Hallelujah. I hope it's post-pandemic then. And people's lives will have been changed. They'll be expecting different things. And my young woman falls in with a developer, real estate developer. That's the name of the game here. For the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, the whole metro area has grown tremendously. And it's real estate developers who have a vision of the future. They decide where you're going to live, what you're going to want, where the transportation is, where the schools are, where the parks are, are there any other amenities? They decide all that. And some of them do it with a great deal of vision and respect. And some of them are unethical and some just want to make the buck and some are cheats. So I'm plopping this young pioneer woman into this post-pandemic environment where people are designing the future. And we'll see what happens. Wow. Even just the exercise of imagining a post-pandemic world again and how this will have affected things is an interesting exercise in and of itself. Yes. And that's why I'm only going three years out because... I think beyond that is beyond me. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And now let's go back to the contract and how you decided to tell me about, well, tell everybody the plot of that book as well. And what inspired you to write, to write that story? It's about a bunch of children's museum designers, Joe and Ev, man and wife. 
Joe is around 48, and she says, you know, I've got to make my mark now. And she thinks that if they're invited to bid on a contract in Saudi Arabia, in Riyadh, and she thinks, this is it, I'm going for this, and it's going to make my name. And he is a different kind of person. She's got all the balls. He's got the soft side. He just wants to stay home and make things. But they go, and it doesn't turn out the way she thought. She learns a lot about her culture, about her work, about her marriage, and about herself, and what it means, what she can tolerate and what she can't. And that's why I wrote the book, because in this day and age, I was thinking, mulling over, how do people become tolerant? Shouldn't they? When? What makes it, what makes it happen and what are the impediments? And this was in my back of my mind, and I wasn't even quite aware that it was in the back of my mind. And then I met my friend, name not to be announced, met a friend, wonderful woman. She was a, a professional, kind, generous, very thoughtful. And she, her sister came to visit. And the way she talked to her sister shocked me. She was completely contemptuous. And I said to myself, wouldn't you have learned by now to tolerate her? And then I realized, oh, I can use my experience in Saudi Arabia if I'm going to write about tolerance. That's one extreme. Yeah. So, of course, my, my Joe and Ev, my designer couple, they live in Oakland, California. So I have both extremes. Wow. How did you use, you've had a whole career at, in museums, yes. in the whole museum life, and you were able to bring that in to inform all the details of this book. So what made you start writing to begin with? And I know you have another book as well, but how did you transition or how did you incorporate this element of creativity into your professional life? Okay. <laughs> the contract had to be set in had to be set in the museum world because my own experience in Saudi Arabia was the museum world and I had to make it real right. because you can't make up stuff about Saudi Arabia. It's just too far out. Anyway, back to how did I become a writer? Well, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I have to take you back to the beginning. I had a whole other life. Yeah, let's go years. back. Okay. The beginning is in high school. I had a mar marvelous teacher. You know, I hope you had the one teacher who changes your life. A lot of people have them. He was one of a math teacher, Dr. Dodies. Had him for three years. So I went to college thinking I'd be a mathematician. And I got there, and they had made me take physics. And, oh, mechanics was okay. But then when they got to electricity and magnetism, I, I didn't know what was going on. So I said, I can't do this. You know, I have a scholarship. I have to do well. I'm going to have to go home. And a friend of mine said, well, what do you like? And I said, well, I like my English composition class. And she said, so major in English. So I did. And then, not being so intellectually greedy, and then I went to graduate school and I got a master's degree in social science and sociology. So after my education, I was prepared for everything and nothing practical. <laughs> so I was in Berkeley, California at the time. And I ran into, this is 1969, which is a time of great social unrest, like now, only very positive. It was free speech and anti-war and the beginning of women's liberation. It was an exciting time. Alternatives were big. So I ran into a physicist who was starting a science museum, and he wanted it to be an alternative, not telescopes and steam engines behind glass cases, but light and sound that you could actually play with. And I thought, hmm, sounds great. It's science, math and science. It's humanities, and it's an alternative social institution. I'm going to do this. So I started my first job. I joined Frank Oppenheimer. We built the Exploratorium, which has been 
widely emulated around the world. So my first job turned into a career and I worked in it for 40 years. It was fabulous. I helped start museums in different places. I wrote a book about museums. I instructed people all over the world. And then I moved to Phoenix in 1993 for one last shot. No, I was really gonna from scratch. I really liked the from scratch, starting things up. So I moved here, got the Arizona Science Center up and running, made it a little bigger, had mentored my successor, thought about things. And then suddenly it was 40 years and I was done. It's like a little switch. I'm done. This institution still needs to change and become even more contemporary, but it doesn't need to be changed by me. It needs to be changed by a digital native. I'm done. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I needed to change. So I started consulting. And then the universe intervened. My mother had a stroke. She was living back east with my sister. And I went to visit her and I saw her in May. No, excuse me. I saw her first in April. And I said, Mom, you don't seem to really know who you are anymore. Because, you know, as the stroke multiplies, she was really losing her personality. Mom, you don't know who you are anymore. Do you want me to tell you your story? And she said, yes. I said, okay. So I told her life story in 45 minutes. I cleaned it up. (laughs) And I finished and she said that was interesting. And I said, well, you won't remember, but I'll tell you again. So in May, I go to see her. Mom, would you like to hear your story? Yes, I would. And I started to tell her story, but she couldn't pay attention for 45 minutes. So I told her a few chunks. And she said, oh, that was interesting. And I said, okay, well, if you won't remember, I'll tell you again. So I go to see her in June and I start to tell her her story. And she couldn't even put the chunks together. She was out of it. And I took a walk and it was like somebody stabbed me in the belly. I said, I have to write her story. In retrospect, I think as I was mourning her in advance, I was trying to keep her because she was going away. So I came back to Phoenix and I wrote her story and I went to the Piper Center here and got an editor and I finished it and I shared it with a few friends. And then I realized I wanted to write more. I think the old English major came back and I enrolled in community college here and it was such fun. It was so different from everything else I had done for my business life. You know, there were sort of sad, lost 20-year-olds and a bunch of other older people trying to recharge their batteries. And it was, ball. I had a wonderful time. So I kept taking classes. And I'm in my third short story class. And I'm looking at the story in my hands. And I say, it's too big. It's not going to fit in 20 pages. And the guy sitting next to me said, so write a novel. And I went, okay. (laughs) And that's the, started me on the journey on my first novel, Appetite. I think it was possible. I didn't have writer's block, which was a tremendous blessing. And I think it's because I already had a successful life here. I was already an asset to the community. So if I screwed up, it wouldn't matter. (laughs) That's at least that's what I told myself. And it worked. I worked away at it. It took quite some time because I was still consulting and then got it going and realized this is really what I want to do. And I'm continuing to do the only there's a, a there's a bunch of advantages to having other to having another career besides just having the freedom to fail. I realized that a lot of the skills from my past life still pertained. I knew how to commit myself to a five year project with an uncertain outcome. I knew how to stick to a schedule and budget. I knew how to not to stop second guessing myself all the time. And I knew how when I was in over my head to go get some expert help. 
All of this was kosher, and I used all those skills in my writer life, too. The big disadvantage about my second life is that it's going to be shorter than the first one. Aww. And I got to hurry up and <laughs> get more books under my belt. But I don't think that way. Every project is one. Every book is its own thing. And you just live in that book for the years that you're in it. And then the next one comes up. That's amazing. So how did it feel to publish a novel? How old were you, if I may ask? You don't have to answer, but when the when Appetite came out. You don't have to say it. Okay, you don't want to say it. It's fine. Okay, Very old. Very old. Okay, Maybe fine. I could be your mom. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I started writing in my 60s. Okay, let's, that's fine. Started writing in your 60s, and then you had a novel published. What did that feel like? And I know, as you've said, you've accomplished so much professionally in other areas. And by the way, I love the Arizona Science Center and have been there many, many times. So anyway, love it. But how did it feel like when it first came out or you first saw it on a shelf or like to, to have that happen and just feel that? What, what was it like? I can only imagine. I was living in a different world. When you're writing, you're writing, but I'll give you an example. I had a, a Changing Hands Books. If you know Phoenix, maybe you know Changing Hands, wonderful independent bookstore. Uh-huh. I had the launch there. And just before the launch, I was so nervous. I had called a friend of mine who's a personal trainer. I said, work me out. <laughs> in my other life, I would stand up in front of a room full of 1,500 people and by force of will make them shut up. <laughs> it's not possible in the new life. <laughs> because it's different. When you're standing up, Talking about science museums, you have the museum, you have the board and the donors and the staff and the visitors. You have all these people behind you. When you're standing up to talk about your book, it's just you. Art is so much more personal. So I had to make a shift from a more public persona into a private one and revealing that private one. And that was different. Exciting and a little scary. But now I'm much more used to it. And I think it's a privilege to be able to plumb your own depths in a way that makes sense for other people. It's amazing. I love that. Having gone through this journey, what advice would you have for aspiring authors of, at any age? Yes. Most people, when they start something, think of all the reasons not to. There are reasons not to, and they're probably valid, but ignore them. There are reasons to. And the main reason is because you can, you don't lose your old skills and your old personality, but you can exercise it differently. I feel like I'm still engaged with the world, but I'm exploring it in a different dimension. That's how it feels. And my advice would be, oh, go for it. Whenever I give talks or readings, people come up to me afterwards, and you can tell by a look on their face that they're, they're wannabe writers and they're looking for help. And they say, I had this great story or I had this wonderful and fantastic experience, and I just can't seem to get to it. And I say, make yourself a promise, 21 days. One hour a day for 21 days, because that science says that 21 days is what it takes to form a habit. So, and also my other piece of advice is to work on your craft. Because if you don't, if you can't massage a sentence into what you want it to be, you won't really be able to tell whether you're expressing your story or not. So, work on your craft. You can take classes at a community college if you have one. I was lucky enough to have one right by. Or you can find a critique group, go online, there's tons of them. Do whatever you do, but write. Work on your craft and then see what you have to say. Wow, that's so inspiring. I love this. It's so encouraging because it's like, it's just so encouraging. You, you take everything, every skill in your brain and you like melded it all together. And then now you're producing like in little installments, novels and delight and entertainment for so many other people. It's really neat. <laughs> it's really neat. 
So Thank you. <laughs> I'm very impressed. <laughs> Great. I hope when you read the next one that I've got it right, that it is accurate post-pandemic, but also delightful. I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all your stories and for coming on my podcast and for all your great writing. So thank you so much. And Sibi, I have to tell you, you must be the nicest person in the world. What you do for books and readers and writers and stories is just splendid. Aww. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> all right. Okay. Bye. Take care, Sheila. Thanks so much to firstbook.org for sponsoring this Labor Day Book Blast. Please consider giving to firstbook.org to help their network of 475,000 educators serving children in need. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.